Well, this looks like a very inviting place to settle down. But if you're camping, you always want to know how to get home. And uh, one thing essential is to have a compass. Find out where true north is. And there are several kinds of places that you can find maps, compasses. I've lived long enough to remember when this wasn't the Bible people brought to church. They brought these. Incidentally, I'm holding in my hand the most popular book in all of the world. For 40 years, no other book has sold as many copies annually as this book. And you know what? It's listed in the nonfiction section. Because it is true. Now, it claims to be the Word of God. But isn't that a rather circular argument? Aren't there other books that claim to be inspired and be God's Word? Yes, there are. Two of great note would be the Book of Mormon and the Koran. So what is this, a game of pick one? Why is this the most popular? Why is this the most enduring? Why do people want us to believe that this is the true Word of God? What evidence is there to support that? Now, if you were in a uh, systematic theology class studying Christology or theology, about a half a semester would be devoted to this topic that we're looking at this morning. And I want to give you two references because we won't have time to do much more than scratch the surface and knock the dust off. But here's two books that will certainly be of great help to you. The first is a book on systematic theology and Bible doctrine. Now, don't let the title frighten you or the 60 chapters. It is available on Kindle, but the first eight chapters of this book written by Wayne, or edited by Wayne Gruden. The first eight chapters deal with the Word of God, the written Word of God. And there's wonderful resource material there. Wayne Gruden is professor of systematic theology at Phoenix Seminary, and he taught systematic theology at Trinity College for 20 years. He teaches a Sunday school class in Phoenix. I have attended that class. There's 400 people in it, and it's an electrifying experience. What I love about his book is this. At the end of every chapter, he talks and deals with the various teachings that the Roman Catholics, the Anglicans, the Baptists, the Lutherans, and other evangelical organizations take 
on that particular topic. It is an easy read book. It is a great resource. The second is a book much more popular, and it's written to a much more popular audience, and it's The Case for Christ. And the author of that book is Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. He was an investigative reporter with the Chicago Tribune. Lee Strobel is a very fascinating person. He was an avowed, confessed atheist. He and his wife and their little daughter, infant daughter, went to a restaurant. And uh, while they were eating, their daughter began to choke on some food. Seated next to them, just a table or so away, was a registered nurse, an African-American lady who was a registered nurse. She immediately jumped to her feet, grabbed this infant, and with her nursing knowledge, knew how to do CPR on this child and get this uh, choking dislodged. Handed the baby back. It had been blue when she picked her up. And when she handed it back, nice, ruddy, red complexion. She said to Lee and his wife, I am so glad God brought me here tonight. And his wife said, what do you mean by that? Well, she said, I just felt God saying to me, you must go to this restaurant tonight. And I wondered why. Now I know. As a consequence of that, the wife became very interested in the church, began to go to church, and began to worship the Lord, gave her heart to the Lord, and all of that became very, very troubling to Lee. And he became angry and uh, became a little difficult to live with. Finally, he said, well, I'm going to prove to you there is no God, and I'll prove to you that this is all fake. If there is a God, and if Jesus Christ is his son, and if Jesus Christ died on a cross to redeem us, and was raised from the dead, everything about your faith, talking to his wife, hinges on one fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's a resurrection and I can prove it, I'll believe. But if you can't prove a resurrection, I'm out of here. He took a leave of absence from the Chicago Tribune went on a journey. Literally, it took him overseas as well as here in the States. And when he began to see the multiple evidences of the resurrection, historically, he became a believer. It is a fast read. It's a page turner. 
It's been made into a film. It's been in the major movie theaters. If you haven't seen it, you ever get a chance, get it, look at it. It's wonderful. This book has been translated into over 1,000 languages. Another 2,000 languages have at least one of the 66 books in it. Okay, so much for that. Why is it better than the Book of Mormon or the Koran? Why are you telling me I should put all my marbles in this book? This book contains something no other book contains. It is called prophecy. Up to 400 years before Christ, for several thousand years prior to that, prophets wrote about a virgin who would someday bear a child in the city of Bethlehem, and he would be called Jesus, and he would die on a cross, and he would be raised from the dead. 66 books in the Old Testament, many of them referring to this, written over a span of 2,000 years with 290 specific references to Jesus Christ, his birth, his death, and his resurrection. No other book has such proof, such documentation. So here we are this morning, living in a very different society and a very different culture with what seem to be very different issues. And we ask ourselves, is this book still relevant? <clears throat> David said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then John, speaking of Jesus, said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, the Bible says it's the word of God. Well, let us take a closer look at the significant differences between the Bible and some of these books. First of all, this is a story of love. You say, how can you say that? There's so much violence in this book. There's war. There's murder. There's assassinations. There's just all sorts of things. When the book opens, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, at the third verse, we are introduced to the creation story and it goes like this, and the earth was void and without form, 
and darkness moved upon the face of the deep. And in verse 3, we are introduced for the first time to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And it says the Spirit of God moved on that chaotic state. And the Hebrew word describing void, the earth being void, is a chaotic state, disorganization, lack of peace. And the next thing you read after the word of after the Holy Spirit moves on the face of the deep, there's order. Darkness is separated from light. Water is separated from dry land. Day is separated from night. And that is the first clue we have that God is the author, the author of order and peace. He is not the author of confusion, disruption, violence, and chaos. Where there is violence, where there is disorder, whether it be in a home, be it in a business, be it on a campus, or be it in a church, something's missing that God intended to be there, and that is peace, because the Word says He is not the author of fear nor disorder, he is the author of peace. Jesus referred to himself as the very prince of peace. So these books were not written by men and women who sat down and pulled ideas out of the sky. The word says they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that moved on the face of the earth in Genesis 1-3. And they were inspired. The Word was not dictated to them. They were inspired. Jesus turned to the disciples and said to them, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, He will teach you all things and bring things to your remembrance. It is the Holy Spirit who came alongside these authors and helped them through inspiration to write the Word of God. So this takes a different place in all of literature because its authenticity is not dependent simply on human beings. But there is something else besides prophecy When you look at prophecy, whether or not you can prove it tells us if it was true or not. Jesus constantly referred to prophecy in his earthly ministry and said, this is done so that you might what? Believe. Making the dots connected, the prophecy, the reality. Now, the question is a fair question. What about today? Isn't this an archaic book? There are so many rules and regulations, and I don't like that. I want to have freedom. I remember growing up as a little boy in Chicago. We lived in what we would call today a ghetto. We had no nice park. There were no big places where we could play ball. So we, whenever we could, we played ball in the street. You could throw a football right down center line of the street and your 
receiver can go out there and see it without it hitting trees. And it was the best place to play. You could make that curb first base, that curb was third base, that sewer lid down there is second base, and this is home plate. Why would my mom and dad tell me I can't play in the street? They don't like me. They're destroying my fun. They don't understand me. And one day, I discovered why mom and dad didn't want me playing in the street. He came around the corner, out of control, tires screeching. He couldn't get straightened out, so he was going down the wrong side of the road, and he hit a car head on, and he threw it 250 feet. Fortunately, I was not in the street because there was a rule against that. What are these rules? Well, I call them guardrails. That's what the highway department calls them. Jesus spoke about this journey that we're on. We talk about true north. And he said, I want you to know something. The way is narrow, and few there be that are on it, because broad is the way, and many there are that are on the path to destruction. So you cannot decide what Jesus is saying. You cannot decide whether you're on the true path or the wrong path by taking a vote. Because the majority is going to come down on the wrong side. We look at our TVs and we see these demonstrations. You pick this book up. And there's a huge demonstration in it. It's outside Pilate's court. And there is a choice to be made. Barabbas, convicted of insurrection and murder in prison. So Pilate tells the crowd, I'll tell you what, you want to crucify Jesus. You can't find a crime that he's done but you're shouting and screaming, away with him. I'll tell you what, I'll give you your choice. You can choose to set Barabbas free, I'll turn him loose from prison, and I'll crucify Christ, or you can let Christ go free, and we'll let Barabbas stay in prison. You know the result. Barabbas was set free. So much for mob rule. So much for majority opinion. Jesus gave us a warning. It's not by popular vote. You won't find the right way by counting votes. We ask ourselves, is the word of God relevant? Don't we really have different issues? Aren't we struggling with different morals? Well, an attorney came to Jesus one day and he asked a very penetrating question. He said, what must I do 
to have eternal life. The story is in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus said, you're a lawyer. You know the law. What does the law say? Now, that was not what the lawyer was wanting to hear. But he answered Jesus, and he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, That is correct. You have stated it right. Now, the Scripture says the attorney was not about to buy into that because there must have been a tinge of self-condemnation in what he just said. So he turns to Jesus and asks him a second question. Who is my neighbor then? If I have to love my neighbor, who is he? Now, in today's vernacular, the question is this. Who matters? What I want to know is what is the definition of the group of people that I need to associate with and be kind to and love and accommodate and defend? And when you tell me what that group looks like, outside those boundaries, I'm free to hate. Is the scripture relevant? Isn't that where we are today? Would Jesus buy into that? Never. He knew it was a trap. He knew what was going to happen. This man was going to divide society. He was going to choose sides. He was going to say, well, this one's my neighbor, and he's not. He's my enemy. This one I agree with. That one I don't. So Jesus answered his question, and he told the story of the Good Samaritan. Incidentally, it's a story with enormous racial overtones. He said there was a man traveling, and on the road he was robbed and beaten by thieves. He was mugged, and he was left there wounded, bleeding, struggling. And a priest came along, looked at him, did nothing about it. And then a Levite, a Jewish man, he came by. <laughs> Too bad. He walks on. And then a Samaritan. The lower culture, outcasts, hated by the Jews, the same as the woman at Jacob's well who was a Samaritan and Jesus came to minister to her. But the Samaritan took him, bound him up, put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, said, here, care for this man and I will pay you. And if this doesn't cover it, next time through town, I'll pay the balance. So the crowd is standing there listening to Jesus and looking at this attorney and saying, so where are we going with this? And then Jesus looks at the attorney. He turns the question upside down, inside out, and he says to him, 
Who? You tell me. Who was a neighbor to the man who was robbed and beaten? Because the question isn't what does somebody else do to qualify to be a neighbor. The question is, who am I? What has Christ done for me and in my life? Who am I? Because who I am makes you a neighbor. Back in the Old Testament, we are told that God created mankind very different from the animals. He created mankind in his own image, and he breathed eternal breath into mankind. Later in the book of Genesis, you read that God says you have to be very careful the way you treat another human being because every single human being bears the image of God. Whether they are male or female, black or white, young or old, maimed or healthy, popular or never heard of, they bear my image. And if you mistreat them, you are mistreating the image of God in the very handiwork that I have made. It isn't a matter of white supremacy or black lives matter. That has nothing to do with it. As believers, they are all in the image of God. Now, where does that leave us? That leaves us having to look at ourselves and saying, who am I? And incidentally, if you wonder why there's such horrible, evil, atrocious beheadings and all of this. Every single time Satan sees a human being, what is he reminded of? God. You bear the image of God, and I hate God. I hate the image of God, and therefore I am out to destroy you. And the best way I can show my hatred for God is to do it in the most violent, atrocious, inhuman way possible. It's all in the book. And it's relevant. It's current for today. I, uh, I have two boys. One is a a vascular surgeon. He's always been very obedient. He's always, uh, when I, he was growing up, if I was going out speaking somewhere, he always said, Dad, can I go with you? And uh, he had a younger brother. He was an outstanding athlete. Six feet three, 215 pounds as a sophomore in high school. And I was sitting in the stands, and there was a big pileup on the field. And all of a sudden, I saw there's one player that hasn't come out of that pileup. As every father does, I scanned the sidelines looking for 42. Where's 42? 
didn't find him. He was laying on his back, partially paralyzed with a broken neck. Doctors told me from the emergency room, he said, I, I don't know if he'll live through the night. He did. He lost the use of both arms and both legs. The neurosurgeon said, uh, well, this could be permanent, but there's a slight chance, given his size and his bone structure, that the spinal cord might have just whiplashed in the spinal canal, and it's bruised. And if, it, if the swelling goes down, he may get the use of his arms and legs back. He did. Thank God he did. But he was told, don't you ever play another game of football. So he went out for baseball. And he was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles as a third baseman. You hit a ball a country mile. And then sliding into second base in training camp, he jammed his shoulder on the base, tore his rotator cuff. That ended his career. He started drinking. And uh, for 35 years, he drank himself into oblivion. He lost his marriage. He lost his job. He was making $120,000 a year. He lost his family. He lost his credit. He lost his driver's license. And he lost his freedom. And I visited him in jail. Somehow, Steve could never get his arms around it. Dad, there's got to there's be something else. There's got to be another way. This is too narrow. There's got to be another way. I think I'll try drink. My drinking buddies, they accept me for who I am, and they don't condemn me, and they don't have all these moral rules and regulations. And Dad, you're a little too narrow. My first wife died eight years ago. She was laying on her deathbed in our home. He was standing there drunk as can be. My wife looked at me and she said, uh, Wayne, God promised me my prayers are going to be answered and Steve is going to become a man of God. She died. For several years, I wondered where those prayers were. Where's the answer to them? Steve was at his wit's end, and he finally decided, well, <laughs> I've tried everything else. I guess maybe I ought to go to one of these uh, religious recovery centers. But I know when I get there, there's not going to be any booze. So I'm going to tank up on the way. And on his way from California to Detroit, Michigan, where the center was, 
he detoxed and so drunk on an airplane he couldn't get off. When he got off, finally, they rushed him to ICU. And the doctor looked at him and said, Mr. Crace, you've got 24 hours to live. All of your organs have shut down because you poisoned them. You cannot survive unless they start back up. You need a miracle. Every father would have wanted to do what I wanted to do, and that is, I want to be there by his bedside. And I felt God saying to me, don't you go. This is not between you and your son. This is between your son and me. When the doctor said it's over, you're going to die, he finally said, okay, narrow as it is, as restrictive as it is, I'll, I'll try. In January, he will be four years sober. Back in church. Back in church. Back in fellowship with his family. Got a job again. You say, well, what are you saying to me? Are you suggesting that I have to buy into the book? No, what I'm suggesting to you is that you take the word at face value because it has an invitation, and this is what it is. Try it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Imagine the audacity of a God who says, I know you have doubts. I know you want to move the boundaries. I know you don't believe this is relevant. But will you just try it? Taste it and see. Jesus put it similarly when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me because my burden is light. You think it's too hard to walk this path. You think it's too out of touch. Try it. My burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. True north is right here. I've tried to condense a whole semester of theology into a few minutes. It works, folks. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have not only given us a written word, but you have also given us a living word. I pray that there will be no question about the veracity and the truthfulness and the authenticity of your word. But if there is 
I pray that there'll be enough honesty with that question to say, okay, I'll taste it. I'll try it. In Jesus' name.